the need that you may have to reset your heart. This year's been tough. It's been difficult for a lot of reasons. And I, I, I made mention earlier this morning when Brother Randy was standing down here in front, we were getting stuff ready for the, the broadcast. And, and I said, I'll be glad when 2020 is over. Well, I'll be glad when this COVID thing is over is what I said. And Randy said, it ain't going to be over for a while. And so Randy just bursted my balloon. Thanks, Randy. Appreciate that. But it's true. Let's face it. It's not over yet, and it won't be over for a while. Matter of fact, I think life as we know it in the past is probably past. I think we'll have a new norm. We'll settle into it. We'll get used to it. But I think we're going to have a new normal, and that's the way it's going to be. But it doesn't have to be that way in our hearts. It doesn't have to be that way in our attitudes. And so this morning, I, I want to go to the book of Revelation and we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I love chapters 2 and 3 because we see Jesus walking among the churches and he assesses the churches. There are seven of them. And I would try to name them all, but I'll forget one or two. Uh, but today we're going to look at the church of Ephesus. And what happened there and why God is saying what he's saying and what does it mean for us today? Now, when you, I have read many subjects, I read many writers on the subjects of the seven churches. Um, the most recent is letters to the churches, which um, Francis Chan writes, uh, and he refers to some of this, and it's, it's a wonderful uh, book, but I've read books that are specifically on this, and I've also listened to a lot of um, sermons and things like that uh, on this. And one of my favorite, which I will quote several times today, is the sermon done by C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, which was called The Prince of Preachers. Uh, he really, um, he took a church that was dying. I mean, when I say dying, only a handful of people were there. And he preached with such fervor and such might uh, and such anointing that people would flock to come into that church. And he built that church not on himself, but he built the church on solid preaching of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ in a time where it was very tough in London, England. And so he did a marvelous job on this passage, and I will quote him a couple times through this message. But let's read the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and it says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now let me stand here just a second. Go ahead and stand up. we got a few, a handful of us here, but if you're at home, we like to stand for the reading of God's Word. So for right now, you realize that, that we are a temple of the Lord, and He dwells in us. And so when we pray, I, I want to tell you that your home is an extension of the church. You have made your home. If you're watching today, you've made your home a sanctuary for God. And so we're all standing in God's house. Amen? And so let's read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yes, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we pray that you would just use us today, Lord, in a special way, not for our glory, but for yours. Father, we pray, Lord, that we will just be honest with who we are today and be honest about the condition of our hearts. Lord, so that we may truly take in your word, apply it in truth, and Lord, and grow closer to you. We pray this, Lord, this morning in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Now, it's important to understand who is talking. And so to understand that this morning, I I want to go back to chapter 1, and I'm going to read a short section. And it says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is John, the revelator, speaking. Remember, John is on the Isle of Patmos when he writes this. John has been exiled. John is the one who said, he called himself the one who Jesus loves. Now, at first you think, I'm the one that Jesus loves. That's not, I don't think, the attitude, because when we look at all that John has written, he humbles himself. And it's almost as if John writes that he's the one who Jesus loves, almost in disbelief that he can't believe that he's the one that Jesus loves. Like, I'm the one that Jesus loves. I'm the one that he would bleed and die for me. And so that's, the, that's, that's John, as we see all through the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and now Revelation, also written by John. But because, because of his stand for the Gospel in Jesus Christ, uh, church history says that they tried to, to put John uh, in boiling oil, but the oil wouldn't boil. And so they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. So John is all by himself. Well... So it looks to mere man. But it's on this place of Patmos that he's been exiled as a punishment. Here, God reveals himself. And so Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ to him. And so John is writing, and he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I don't know about you, but I I saw this. I don't know whether to run, whether to stop. Imagine John seeing this. And this is John's response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
I hear people say all the time, I'll tell you, when I, when I, when I see God, I got a few questions for him. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're going to do exactly what John did. You're going to fall flat as if dead because you will be in the presence of Almighty God. It says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. Now, this reveals who he is. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I live. I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And that closes chapter 1, and then we go into chapter 2, which we read the first seven verses of to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And so this is Jesus Christ talking to the church. Now, some theologians say that the seven churches represent seven time periods in the church. Because he talks to, I think it was Sardis, who was under persecution. Uh, the, you know, some, each church has this condition. And so some people say there are time periods in the church where the church has been under time periods of, of, uh, of persecution, time periods of, you know, uh, of revival and things like that. Um, and I think that that might, that theory might hold a little bit of water, but then some theologians say that the seven churches represent conditions that a church could be in. Because I can tell you, we think that we're a church of persecution right now, but we have the freedom to do anything we want. Folks, that's not persecution. Worst thing you're going to get is somebody making fun of you or ostracize you because you claim to walk with Christ. But what does that, it doesn't stop you from working, feeding your family. It doesn't stop you from any of those things. Where there are other places right now where when you tell someone that you are following Christ, it could cost you your life. And it's interesting to know that those churches are growing and the American churches die because it's become so easy. So I think the theologians, I think that, and I agree with those who say that these seven churches represent conditions that any church could find themselves in at some point or another. And so this morning, we're going to look at the church of Ephesus for specific reasons. Now, the church of Ephesus, when you, if you want to go back and read about the church of Ephesus, you'll find that in Acts chapter 19 and 20, you will find Paul's time there. Um, and it's interesting to see what happened uh, in Ephesus. Ephesus had the temple of Artemis there. The Romans called it the temple of Diana. And people would go there to worship, and their worship uh, in that temple would include things that we would just call despicable today. Um, uh, things that were sexual in nature, things like that. Uh, and so there was, some, uh, there was some really craziness going on there. We'll just kind of leave it at that. I'm sure your imagination could take you and help you, you know, think about what that would be like, right? Um, but um, something interesting happened there was not only was the temple of Artemis or Diana there and a lot of people would come to worship in that temple, uh, this, this false god, 
but they also would buy uh, these trinkets, if you will, or these statues uh, of, uh, of Artemis, right? Um, and so, you know, there were these craftsmen, these silversmiths that was making money hand, in, you know, hand over fist uh, and selling these things. People would come to the temple and they would want to buy a memento, if you will, or buy a, uh, a, a, a smaller version uh, of the carving of this God so that they could have them with them, right? And so, and, and they would take that back with them to wherever they lived, uh, and they would use that in their worship while they were not at the temple. And so there were people that were getting rich making these, these, these trinkets, if you will. One of them was named uh, Demetrius. And you can find this, I believe, in Acts chapter 19, if I remember correctly. Um, and you, you find that, that Demetrius got upset and went to the other craftsmen. And basically was something like this happened. They're like, if this Paul keeps going and people keep giving their hearts to Christ and abandoning the worship of Diana or Artemis, we're losing business. They will take away our cash stream. Now, can you imagine a revival happening that was so wonderful that businesses that, that catered to things that were evil would actually lose money? Could you imagine that? I mean, it'd be kind of like, you know, uh, by the way, you know, what's interesting is I don't care. I, I, I teach, you know, uh, a lot up in the Baltimore area and people will ask you where you're from, right? A lot of times I'll be talking on the phone to people clean up to New York City and they'll ask me where I'm from and I won't tell them until I help them first. Once I help them find out the problem, then I tell them I'm in from West Virginia. Because if I tell them I'm from West Virginia first, they're probably not going to believe me, right? They're like, I ain't listening to this guy. I always tell them afterwards. But I've been places like Baltimore and up and around that area. And they're like, where are you from? I live in Inwood. Unfortunately, Inwood is known. They're known for some of the places on Route 11, if you will that dabble in these kind of things that probably took place in the temple of Diana. You kind of get what I mean. Imagine that a revival happens and people start giving their hearts to the Lord to the point that those places realize that they ain't got people coming in them no more because they've given their heart to Christ and they've abandoned that lifestyle. Imagine those people realizing they're losing money. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's what happened in Ephesus. People were giving their heart to Christ. And, they were, and Paul spent about two years there. But Demetrius got mad about this and he got the other craftsmen together and they, they tried to basically run Paul out of town and get him in trouble because they were losing money. Isn't that a great thing? So this church of Ephesus, they have been on fire for God, at least at one point. And so now we come to this place where now John is on the Isle of Patmos and, and, and Jesus is talking to him and he reveals the condition of this church of Ephesus that once burned hot with the love of Christ. And Jesus commends them. And Jesus starts off commending them. Isn't that just like Jesus? He starts off telling them what he does. Here's some things that you're doing well. Right? They were patient in endurance. They, they couldn't bear those who were evil. They tested those who called themselves apostles. 
And when they were found to be false teachers, they would, they would, you know, uh, they would get rid of them. And, and he also says that they're enduring patiently without growing weary. Now, what's interesting is that when Paul was there, when he was about to leave that area, he, he spoke to the elders at Ephesus. And it's found in Acts chapter 20, um, actually verses 17 through 28. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to read a few verses from there, starting at verse 28. He, Paul said this to the, to the elders of Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Admonish is, is to correct. Right? It's to, to show someone the error of their way. And so Paul warned them that, listen, when I leave, when I leave, these people are going to come in. These are the people that I was running off. And monish one with tears means that when he did have to correct someone, he didn't do it from a place of, you know, I'm telling you. Or It was from a place of tears. It was a place that, that he hated to do that, but he had to. And as a pastor, I can identify with that. There's been times I've had to say tough things and do tough things, and it stinks to high heaven. And I can't tell you how many times both my wife and I both would cry after we had to do something very tough. It, it hurt to have to do those things. But as a pastor, if I don't, I've got to stand before God one day. And he'll go like, you know, you loved yourself more than you loved your people. Or, and you may say, how, how did you arrive at that? Because when I... Well, when I spare my feelings over yours, I'm loving me more than I love you. By sparing my feelings and not having to do the tough thing, I then hurt those who need to hear such tough things. By the way, sometimes when you do this, people don't like it. And I'm not just talking about the person that, or people that you had to talk to. Others around. Sometimes we'll give you a hard time as well. And Sal and I have walked that road more than once. And it is tough. I would like to tell you that I didn't let it bother me. But I'd be standing here a liar. And so it does bother. And so when Paul says that, that he admonished everyone with tears, he's like, man, I, I told you the truth. And, and it hurt me to the point to have to do that. But I love you that much. And so now we find the church, so the church has been doing some really good things. But Jesus says that he has this one thing against them. You see, Jesus is able to see in us what men can't see. When you look at me and you see me every Sunday up here preaching, and you see that we actually live here at the church and all that, you may look at my life and think that I've got it going on. But Jesus sees the real me. You may only catch the good parts of me. You may not catch my bad habits. Now, my wife does most of the time. And she and Jesus are like this. Sometimes I try to hide from both of them. 
doesn't help. Both she and Jesus know. We all got bad habits. We got things that we do that God's not pleased with. We know that. But to the naked eye, sometimes people would see us and think that we have it all going on when simply that's not the case. But understand, we will stand before a God that absolutely knows us and is able to separate the good and the evil in everything that we do because God knows our motive. And the thing is, we can do great things and we can do good things for people and, it, and we may look at those good things that are being done and look at it and think that because this person calls himself a Christian that the motive has to be God and that's why they're doing this when that could be the furthest thing from us. You know, people who don't love God do good things too. But what does it mean that Jesus has something against them? And what would that say if I were to look at you and say Jesus has something against you? Now, that's not my place. God has not told me to say that. But I'm asking you, what would it mean to you? How serious would you take it if I looked at you and said Jesus has something against you? Would that hurt your feelings? When I found out not too long ago, I found out about a week ago that some people I love had something against me. It hurt. Didn't stop me from doing what I needed to do, but it hurt. It hurt that people would doubt me or that people would talk behind my back and of the good that we were trying to do. That hurts. It hurts deep. But if you looked at me and said, that, you know what, Jesus has got something against you. That would cut me to the core. And the fact is, is when I read this scripture, it does cut me to the core. Because I know that I at times am exactly that church of Ephesus. I've conditioned myself. I want you to, now listen, I want to get real today. It's easier to get real today when there ain't as many people here to have to talk to afterwards. I'm going to get real with you. Sometimes I am one of those members of the church of Ephesus. You know why? I've conditioned myself to the point to do the work that sometimes I do it without thinking and sometimes I do it when I don't want to do it and I do it even when I'm angry. I've conditioned myself at this point after 14 years of pastoring to do what I have to do. But if I told you I did it with love in my heart all the time, I'd be lying to you. I'd be lying to you if I said that every hospital visit I made, I did with a loving heart. I'd be lying to you if I said that every time that I did something for someone, I did it with a loving heart. Sometimes I did it because I'm a pastor and I'm going to do it. Because otherwise my name will get drugged through the mud and so I need to do what a pastor needs to do. And sometimes I do it with the wrong attitude and the wrong heart. Now you'd never see it because when I see you, I'm like, how you doing? Good to see you. Lying through my teeth. Good to see you. Actually, when I want to say, I wish I didn't have to be here. I don't even like you right now. Try loving people that you know are talking about you. Try loving people that are trying to undermine what you're doing. Try loving people that don't agree with your methodology or with what you're doing when you know that God told you to do it. 
And what I really want to do is tell them to shove it where the sun don't shine. If you don't like it, argue with God. Otherwise, get out of my face. I can't say that. I have to say, welcome, good to see you. Josue's here with us today. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. But so do you. You all know what I'm talking about. You at home know exactly what I'm talking about. We're all the people at Ephesus at some time. And the fact that I could do what a pastor does and do it with a heart that's bitter scares me to death. How is it I can do what a pastor is supposed to do and sometimes do it with a bad attitude and have everybody think that I'm doing something wonderful? Isn't that scary to you? Shouldn't that scare you? Scares me. Because that's what happens. But to think that then Jesus would look at me, I'm talking about my Savior would look at me, huff. You're doing all those wonderful works. But look here, bud. I still got something against you. Shouldn't that hurt? Shouldn't that hurt you to think that God would have something against you? This is what Spurgeon said. I told you I'm going to quote him a couple times. He said, the master evidently counts this decline of love to be a personal wrong done to himself. I have somewhat against thee. It is not an offense against the king, nor against the judge, but against the Lord Jesus as the husband of the church. An offense against the very heart of Christ himself. I have somewhat against thee. He does not say thy neighbor has something against thee, or thy child has something against thee. He doesn't even say thy God has something against thee. But instead, I, thy hope, thy joy, thy delight, and thy Savior, I have something against you. To think that our ever-loving Savior, who died on the cross for us, who even said, forgive them for they know not what they do, would now look at me and say, Huff, you've done some good things. But right now, buddy, I've got something against you. That shakes me to my core. And I hope it shakes you too. Because it should. You see, God calls us to love. We are to love Him above all, but also love our neighbor too. Now, which one is He talking about here? When He says that, 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 that you've abandoned the love you had at first, is He talking about God or neighbor? Yes, it's both. Well, can you still do good things for your neighbor even though you don't love them? Absolutely. Why? Because in some ways we've conditioned ourselves to do that. Christians are supposed to do that. We're supposed to pack dinner boxes. We're supposed to do these things. I can still do them with a dirty heart. Because the fact is, is some of these things that we do, we could do without knowing God at all. You see, I know some groups of people, different clubs, biker clubs, mooses and the mises and all them other ones. They don't claim to know God at all. Maybe some of them do. I'm not saying that some of them aren't Christians. But their club is not centered on God. They're not calling themselves the church. 
And still yet, they do good things for people. They feed hungry people. They pack backpacks for kids. They do all kind of stuff. And the fact is, you and I can do the same. We can be out here doing all kind of great things and still not have the love in our heart that we need to have. God calls us to love. And he said that they had abandoned the love. See, they, they abandoned it. They didn't lose it, right? When you lose something, you don't know where you put it, right? You can't lose your salvation because it's not something like, I forgot where I put my salvation at. But I can't abandon God. Make no mistake. You see, anybody that tells you that you can claim to know God and then just do anything you want to do, that's not true. Now, some people will say that you never knew him to begin with, and that might be the case. But not always. And I'll show you the scripture. From the view of the naked eye, this church had it all going on. Now, I want you to think about that. To the naked eye, this church had it all going on. Jesus commends them for all these things, right? You, you are, you're, you're not allowing false teachers. You're calling them you know, out. You're, you're not bearing with people that are evil. You're doing all those, good, those right things. But the fact is, is that you simply have abandoned your love. It means you walk away from it. We hear things in marriages like now, right? Falling out of love. As if you fell in it to begin with, like it's a pile of poop or something. I fell in it. How you can't fall out of it? People don't fall out of love. People don't nurture love and massage it and do the things they need to do for that love to remain hot. They don't stoke the fire. If you don't stoke a fire, it will burn out. But you didn't fall out of it. It's almost like we're a victim. I fell out of love, like accidentally. Like I, I fell in that hole. Somebody should have covered that hole up. You don't fall out of love. You purposeful and purposely abandon it. Just like you abandon a campfire. Oh, I'm done with it. So I'll walk away. I don't feed no wood in it no more. I don't stoke it up. I don't do any of that. That fire will burn out. That fire didn't burn out back. Well the, well, the flame fell out. It didn't fall out. You didn't take care of it. And it's interesting that we can look at the parallel between this and marriage. But the view from the naked eye is that everything is okay. By the way, you ever seen marriages like that? All of a sudden, when people announce they're getting divorced, you're like, what is wrong with them? They were always together. They were always doing this. They were always doing that. To the naked eye, it looked like everything was great, but it wasn't at all. They abandon the love. You're not a victim in this case. To lose something, you're a victim. You lost it like it was an accident or something. They didn't lose anything. They walked away from it. They abandoned it. This is what Spurgeon has to say about a church with no love. He says, a church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart or when that love grows cold. Have I not often reminded you that almost any disease may be hopefully endured except disease of the heart? But when our sickness is a disease of the heart, it is full of danger. And it was so in the case of the Ephesus because thou hast left thy first
You see, it is possible to do work and to hate false teaching and all those things because we have words like this, orthodoxy, doctrine, intellectual teaching. We can do all these things without feeling nothing. Some people like to learn. I think today's culture, we have professional students. People just keep going to school for stuff. Why? Because it's just how we're conditioned, right? The more letters you have after your name, right, the, the, the more important, the more empowered you feel. Matter of fact, if you make a good argument, it could be a good intellectual argument, but if you don't have the right letters after your name, they won't listen to you. Although they say that your argument's invalid because you're not speaking of one uh, who has you know, learned enough about the subject. Well, listen, God gave us common sense, and there's a lot of things I don't need some degree. I don't need a doctorate to tell me some things. God has given me common sense, and God's put some brain matter in between my two ears. If I put that thing to use, there's a lot of things that we could learn. Paul writes about love to the Corinthian church, and he shows us the importance of it. You've heard this. It's the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. We read this at weddings all the time, don't we? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Love is everything. I can do all great things, but if I don't have love, he says that it is, I'm worthless. It's worthless. And think about what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Don't we need some patience and kindness? Sometimes I find out people just need to talk. I had a customer last week that was angry about something. And there was these emails flying around, and boy, they was getting bad. So finally I said, I need to call this cat. And so I pick up the phone and I call him. And the receptionist answers the phone. I said, listen, this is Tom with York. By the way, I have a real name. I use it sometimes. This is Tom with York. I need to, I need to speak to, doesn't matter what his name was, but. Okay, yeah, I think he's going to want to talk to you. Yeah, I know. So when he answers the phone, he says, this is so-and-so. I said, hey, this is Tom from York. I saw the emails flying around. I thought it would just be best to call you. You know, let's, let's, let's get this thing figured out. And he started to tell me everything. Nothing about heat and air conditioning. I had to put the phone on mute at one point and start laughing. He's telling me about problems with his wife and her business and all these other things. This dude, he, he looked like he, he wanted somebody to talk to. And finally, when everything got said done, I said, all right, man. I said, I understand those things. Yeah, I, you know, I get it, man. Trust me, I get it tough year. And I told him, I said, man, listen, you know what I do outside of here? I pastor a church. I said, trust me, I, I talk to people all the time that are up against it just like you. He says, man, I'm sorry I unloaded on you. It just felt good, to, felt good to finally just tell somebody and you being a pastor. He said, I, 
As soon as I heard your voice, I don't know what it was. I just, something come apart in me. I just let it all out. Man, that's fine. I said, now, you know, we still need to talk about this problem. Yeah, yeah, about that, man. I'm sorry. Got a little beside myself. I said, well, we can work it out, but here's my plan. Man, you've gone above and beyond. Thank you so much. I hung up, and I'm like, I want to know who tipped that guy off that I was a pastor. I sent a message to the market manager, the salesman, and my guys, who told this guy I was a pastor? Not me, not me, not me. Why? I said, because it's like he knew. What happened to Sal? Well, Sal and I were on a work trip one time. And we ended up going to dinner with these people. And Sal sat behind this. This lady was telling her everything about her gas problem and all this. And Sal's like, oh, oh, well, we'll be praying for this. And this woman just like, Sal's like, I don't know who told this woman I'm a pastor's wife or whatever, but this lady just spilled her guts. But you know, sometimes it takes love to endure those things. Love is patient. Love is kind. Sometimes you got to listen for a while. You know, the problem is we do so much of this, we don't know how to work these. You know, the old, my grandmother used to say, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Take a hint. She didn't have no education, but she was smart. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love endures all things. Love does not insist on its own way. Boy, I wish everybody exercised that. That's the one thing that pastors wish you could hand out. I'm going to give everybody a gift of this. Because trust me, no matter what I do, have services virtually, somebody's mad. Have services in person, somebody's mad. You can't win. I quit trying to win. I just keep trying to listen to God and do what he tells me to do. And let the rest just fall where there is. But churches have been split right down the middle over people wanting their own way. But it says here that love doesn't do that. Love says that you don't worship here just as long as you get what you want, but the moment you don't get what you want, you find somebody else who will. That, that's not even in the Scriptures. Matter of fact, most of the reasons people live churches is nothing, about, nothing scriptural to it. It's preference. That's how we are in America now. It's about preference. It's like we're shopping. They want to see what brand. Right? Oh, that's a Chevy church. I don't like that one. That's a Ford church. I, don't, I want me a Dodge church. You know what I'm saying? I need, some, I need some Hemi. You know what I mean? That church ain't got no Hemi. That thing's a Ford with a four-cylinder in it. I don't need that. I want a Dodge church with a V8 at least, right? Or give me that Cummins diesel. I like that thing. Preference. But then we'll say that we love God. You see, the truth of the matter is, if I don't love my neighbor, then I'm not loving God. Because I can't separate them two. And Jesus said this church had lost it. You see, love is the only motivation that will last. That church may have been doing good things, but I can tell you unequivocally, with 100% assurance, that after a while, if you're doing it just to do it, sooner or later you will stop. Love is the only motivation that will last. Love is the only motivation that will keep you going. You may be doing good things for a while, but after a while of not getting recognition, after a while of people not thanking you, and after a while of, of people not liking what you're doing, talking bad about you and all you're trying to do is the right thing, after a while, if you do not love those people, you will stop doing it. And I can't tell you how many times I've been this close to quitting. 
And then I get reminded by God that you're doing it for me and you're doing it for love. Therefore, you love those whom I love. And Huff, if you're not going to love those whom I love, then you can't love me. So what's it going to be? What's weird, though, is sometimes God's voice sounds like my wife's. Isn't that weird? Sometimes it's southern. Like she's in cahoots with God. They gang up on me. It ain't fair. But they do. They gang up. Give me a hard time. Speaking of that, it's kind of like a lot like marriage, isn't it? This love. It's not by accident that Jesus said that we're to love our wives, husbands, as Christ loved the church. It's not by accident that he told the wives to be in submission to their husbands as unto the Lord. That doesn't mean, fellows, we tell them to go get a Pepsi, they come back with a Pepsi. That's not what that submission is at all. It's about following the leader of the home and being the support cast for the leader. But you know what's interesting is that when God looked down at Adam and said it would not, it's not good that man would be alone. Now, I know what women say about that. God knew that we would never ask for directions. And so we all need a wife because we will drive lost for hours before we'll ask somebody. You ever look at the, well, the sun's pointed that way. It's noon, you dummy. The sun is in the middle of the sky. You don't know north from south at that point, east from west. But that's not it at all. And you know what's interesting? We went over this at a Marriage Matters one time. When we looked at marriage, when God looked at Adam and said it was not good that man would be alone, but he made a helpmeet, someone to do life with. And with marriage comes this beautiful thing called intimacy that should only be done in the confines of marriage. And, and, And it's only in marriage that two people can become one. Now, what's interesting to me is how many times God uses this marriage in ways to express how he feels about us. Like in the time of Hosea, the prophet, when he told Hosea to go take a wife who had a a terrible past, and then she had children with him, and then she left him to go back to other men. And God told him to go back and and redeem her. And so God used that marriage and their understanding of marriage to show his love for us. When he told Hosea, I know what she's done and she's done wrong, but I want you to go to redeem her, buy her back. He's saying, that's what I do for you. I think about Ezekiel. When we look at it, the Bible says that his wife was the apple of his eye. Brother John McNay actually shared that scripture with me the first time. I never read that. But he told Ezekiel that, you know, I know that she's the apple of your eye and she is going to die, but I do not want you to mourn. He was using that marriage and showing that, you know, he was showing just this strong picture of what he was going to do to them if they did not follow him and kept chasing other gods. And so he used that strong marriage of Ezekiel And so when those people saw that Ezekiel didn't mourn like God told him to do, 
It's like, wow. And he told them, this is what God's going to do for you. He's going to cut you loose, and he's not going to shed a tear over it. And that shook them and told them something very important. And so God has used marriage over and over again and the roles of a husband and wife to show the beauty of the church and his relationship with us. And when I look at this scripture here, I think about marriage because the same thing happens in marriage, right? We can do marriage and not have love in our heart. And our homes are in no way fulfilling when that happens. Now, when we have love in our home, like when we first get married, oh, when you first get married, she can do no wrong, you can do no wrong, right? I mean, you know, when you, when you first get married, everything's cute and nice and all and everything, right? Pass gas and giggle about it. You get old and you start doing it and under the blanket, she kicks you out of bed, makes you sleep on the couch. Where's the love in that? I ask you. Isn't it weird that we're in love? When we first get together, we're in love. We, we, we buy each other. I'm taking flowers down and putting them on her windshield with little notes. I love you. We get married, and there she is fixing my, my lunch. I go to work, and, and you know it's all I can do to kiss her on cheek and get out the door. I got stuff to do. Now, when I go to work, I think I'm working hard for the family, right? I'm working hard to provide for the family. And when you first start doing it, you love it, right? You love my family. I love my wife, my new little baby. I, knew I love, I love, I love, I love, I love. Then after a while, you're just doing it. By habit, I'm going to work and I'm working hard to provide for the family because that's what you're supposed to do. But I wasn't loving it. And I certainly wasn't loving my wife the way I was supposed to. And after a while, now listen, while I was at work, because Sal was a stay-at-home mom for several years, and, and when I was at work, she was doing the laundry. I never once went to the, in the morning and pulled out my dresser drawer. I never once did that and not had clean clothes. But I remember when she first started doing it, it's like, I love you so much. I got clean clothes. They smell so good. She used even used them fabric softener sheets like the one that fell on my sleeve a couple weeks ago. I went back and watched that, by the way. That was, whew. I don't know why y'all didn't say something. Somebody should have said something. Huff, got a fabric softener in your sleeve. It's getting ready to fall out, and we're all waiting for it. <laughs> no, let me go on preaching. But I used to put my, I was like, man, I'd not do like this. Oh, Sal, that shirt smells so good. Thank you so much, baby. Then after a while, I just come to expect it. I expect my clothes to be done. Sal expected me to go to work, and we started expecting things. We didn't kindle the fire. We didn't have date nights. We quit doing those little things that told each other we loved them. Right? Because you can say, I love. We always told each other we loved each other. Right? I love you. Love you too. Right? Like you had to. I love you. It's like when your mom used to tell them you're sorry. I'm sorry. Tell it like you mean it. But I don't mean it. Right? That's what you wanted to say as a kid, but you wouldn't because you know you're going to get smacked. I'm sorry. Then after your mom turned her head, I ain't sorry. I ain't sorry. We tell each other we love each other like we just had to. Right? Love you, love you too. I come to expect those things from her. She come to expect those things from me. One of the best advice Dave and Mary ever gave is, 
quit, never quit dating. That was something they told us when we come here. You know what you need in your marriage? Never quit dating. Keep dating. Because the dating is what keeps the fire stoked. And so after a while, being a Christian, sometimes we just come expect God to do these things for us. And we just keep doing the things that we have to do. I keep working. She kept, kept cleaning the house, taking care of the kids, doing all those things she had to do. And I kept doing what I had to do. But there was no love in it. There was no joy found in it. There was no feeling complete in that. I didn't feel fulfilled. She didn't feel fulfilled. We were miserable. And then it got worse because I thought she was miserable. And then, so then I decided to build her a new house that was bigger and better than the one we had, thinking that that would fix it. Made it worse. All she wanted was my love. And she knew I was holding that out. And I knew she was holding that out on me too. We did all the things. We checked all the boxes. We did all the work. See what the church was doing here? They checked all the boxes. They didn't let false teachers in. They gave to the poor. They, did, they checked all the boxes. But yet Jesus looks at them and says, I have something against you. You've abandoned your love for me. You're not doing this because you love me. You're doing this out of habit. You're doing this because you know that's what you're supposed to do, but you have no joy in it because you've abandoned your love. We do that in marriage as well, and God uses marriage all the time. And you know what's interesting about marriage? And I went over this in Marriage Matters once. What's interesting about marriage is it gives us something on this earth that we're not going to need in heaven. Now think about that for a minute. Marriage gives us something here on earth. This something special that God gave us. The, 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 the intimacy and the ability to grow and to be one person and to come together in a special way. And it reflects his relationship with us and teaches us about him. We won't need it in heaven. Now think about that. Marriage gives us something that we can't get anywhere else. But yet when we get to heaven, we'll be full and we won't need it. That shows us how important it is here. How do I know we won't need marriage in heaven? Because they asked Jesus. There was a woman whose first husband had died. And then his brother took her as a wife. And then he died. And then the third brother took him as a wife. First off, this woman must have been bad luck. If I'd been the third guy, I'd be like, man, listen. I'll take care of you and all, but man, you've got bad luck. And apparently everybody you marry dies. So I, I think I'm going to hold off. But I built you a little place back here on the property. And I'll make sure you have everything you need. No. So anyway, they come to Jesus and they're like, the first one died, the second one died, now the third one takes him as a wife. So when she gets to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? That was the question. And this is tough. Because I love my wife. And the Bible says that in heaven we'll be known as we're known. So I've, I'm going to know Sally. But there's going to be something about being in God's presence that will be so complete that we won't need marriage to feel complete. Now think about that. He said in, neither because in heaven we're not given to marriage. Why? 
Because marriage and the intimacy part of marriage and all that, that we, we long for it, don't we? Let's be honest, adults, we long for that. We long for that touch. We long for that intimacy. There's something special about it. It feeds us. It makes us feel complete and it is absolutely beautiful. We'll have that in heaven. In God's presence. We won't be walking around heaven thinking, I need to find me somebody. I feel so alone. We won't need intimacy the way we do here from each other. Because there we will continually be in God's presence. And that will fill us. Now I believe I, I will know Sal. She will know me. And we're going to get to be in eternity forever together. That's going to be great. But we won't need marriage there. That's hard to stomach in some ways. But it's the truth. But that shows me how beautiful marriage is, doesn't it? Doesn't that tell you how beautiful marriage is? That marriage gives us this hint of what heaven's going to be like when we have do marriage God's way. But listen, when we abandon loving each other and stoking that fire, it hurts us. And here the church had done that with their intimacy with Christ. Christ says you're checking all the boxes. You're doing the laundry. You're feeding, you're cooking, you're working, you're doing all that. You're checking the boxes. But you no longer love me. Now, why is it, my friends, now listen to this, this is going to be a hard question. Why is it that on this earth, we think that a loveless marriage, you should be able to get out of that, you, right? You shouldn't stay in a loveless marriage. That's what everybody will tell you. But yet we're expecting Jesus to do that. You get it? Down here on this earth... Right? All the professionals say you shouldn't stay in a loveless marriage. If they're not loving you, not showing you love, you shouldn't stay. That's what, that's what down here on this earth says. Now, they're absolutely wrong. If the fire's going out of your marriage, you need to get a fire starter kit. Amen? You get one in fire starter logs and one in clicker thingamabobs, right? Or get a torch or whatever you got to do. Rub two sticks together. But down here on earth, we're... Professionals say, well, you shouldn't stay in a loveless marriage. But yet that's exactly what we're asking God to do is to stay in a loveless marriage with us. We want God to hold his side of the covenant while we let up on ours. That doesn't work. This is what Dr. David Guzik said. He says, a couple that has been married for a long time doesn't always have the same thrill of excitement they had when they first dated. That is to be expected and is fine if that excitement has matured into a depth of love that makes it even better than the first. I can tell you with 100% assurance that the love Sal and I have today is hotter and better than it was when we first got married. Now listen, we don't, we're not as energetic and crazy like we was when we first got married, if you know what I mean. But our relationship is deeper and our love is stronger than it ever has been in our lives. How did you do it, Huff? It took a whole lot of God. 
on both of our parts. But we found this. When the fire's gone out, it's because you didn't stoke it. And I will tell you that you guys have heard it. I know you get tired of hearing it. But I'm telling you, my marriage would not have survived my first two years as pastor had it not been for a loving couple, Dave and Mary. They saw it. They knew the signs. And they invited us in their home. And they reminded us of what a loving marriage is supposed to be like. And that's why we love them so much. That's why losing Dave hurt so bad. He was a mentor to me. A lot of people are like, well, mentor, wouldn't you have another pastor as a mentor or a preacher? No, listen, I got plenty of them and they're very good. I know some good preachers and they're good people, and they've spoken to my life. But I needed just someone to speak in my life as a dad and as a husband that knew what to do. And Dave was that for me. But the same goes for our relationship with God, because Jesus gave us the answer to how to fix this problem. He gave us the three R's. Remember, repent, and redo. That's the answer to this problem. Now think about what he said. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. He says, if not, I will come and remove that candlestick. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now think about repenting. What is that? That's turning away from. Right? If we don't repent, the joy we once had, the peace we once felt, the spring we once had in our step, it's going to be gone. The blessing of the work of our hands is going to be gone, and there will be no presence of God to warm our hearts or to feel His comfort. So let's start at the beginning. Remember, and so I ask you to do this today. Assess where you are right now and the intensity of your love as compared to how you were when you first learned of the love that Jesus has for you. Do you remember when you first gave your heart to God? When you first realized that Jesus loves you? When you finally realized that cross was not just something people look at and wear around their neck, but actually he was crucified on a cross? For my sins that were my sins that was laid across his back. It was my sins that he took with that beating. I remember in Passion of the Christ watching that movie the first time. We went to the movie theater to see it. Man, I'm going to tell you, I've told everybody this story before, but man, we, were, we had, some, had a big old thing of Diet Coke and a big old thing of popcorn, and we were watching all the preview movies, and we were eating. And from the first frame... I never touched that popcorn again. I don't, we didn't touch the soda. We were just glued. And in some parts I had to close my eyes, but then I had to open them back up again in dis, almost in disbelief that he was taking that kind of beating. And there was one in the scene where they were beating and he was bent over that stone and he fell off, fell down, and he crawled back up. Now, I know that was a movie, but listen, I believe that was, I believe that was a close rendering. When we thought Jesus couldn't take no more, he climbed back up and he took more. It shows, that, 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 that movie just shows the, 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 the awfulness of sin. Do you remember what it was like when you realized Jesus loves you? 
Because remember how much, when you found out how much he loved you, remember how much you loved him for it. Just like in my marriage, I remember when I first laid eyes on Sal. See, the first time I saw her, she was at the vending machine at this place we both worked at. And I was hoping, listen, I'm just going to be honest. I saw her from the backside first, and I thought, man, I hope the front looks as good as the back. If so, I am in love. I'm glad all the people ain't in here because they all be looking at me like I'm funny. I know, but I can't see them. But am I the only one? God, come on, be real. I ain't the only one that's done that. I saw her from, I went, oh my, what is that? Hold my heart in. Then she turned around. <gasps> Full package right there. I was like, mm, I'm going to marry that woman. She don't even know who I am yet, but I'm going I'm to show her. Then you try to talk to me, you're like, oh, can't even say, oh. and all you, <clears throat> all you do is grunt and not, oh. and you just walk away. I can't, I couldn't even, couldn't even form a word to say hi. And then when she laid eyes on me too, we realized there's something special going on there. We started dating. When I realized I loved her and I didn't want nobody else and I wanted to marry her, land sakes alive. Man, shut the front door and lock it. You know what I'm saying? But I also remember when I realized Jesus loved me. See, I've been going to church all my life and I'd heard many times about Jesus, but it, when I was finally sitting in the back pew of Daisy's Chapel, Free Will Baptist Church up on Hossel Road, the church that my grandpa had built. See, church had been in my life forever. My grandpa donated the land and had guys in the community build a church there because there wasn't no churches around, no Baptist churches. And my grandpa knew that God wanted a church in that area, but my grandpa wasn't even a preacher. They had to ask other people to come and preach until God would send them a pastor. But my family knew the importance of God. And I was raised like that, so I knew about God all my life. But that was the problem. I knew about God all my life, but he wasn't mine yet. But I remember the night I made him mine. And he made me his. I had made a mess of my life. I had done so many despicable things that I was hiding from my family. I was involved in terrible things. And when I finally realized that God loved me, even in the midst of my troubles, even the mess I had made, he loved me. And a guy named Ray Mullins was preaching that night. I can't even tell you what he preached on. All I can tell you is my heart was beating so hard that I knew at that moment for me, you can do, I don't know about your conversion, but I'm telling you, I knew at that moment it was do or die for me. I knew that if I rejected God at that moment, I was fearful that I'd never have another chance. Now, I'd like to tell you that I lived real good after that. I struggled, didn't always do right. But that night will always be special to me. And I remember how much I loved God at that point because I realized how much He loved me. He says, remember from where you've fallen. In other words, remember where you were and now where you're at now. See the difference. This is about an assessment. I want you to take an assessment for just a moment.
And I want you to think about where you are now and what you were like when you first realized how much God loves you. Are you loving him the same today as you did back then? Why are you aggravated with everything? Why does everything upset you? Why does everything just make you angry? Because that's the way we get when we're no longer loving God. That's the way we get in our marriages. We could used to be able to say things to each other. Wouldn't we just roll off like water off a duck's back? Never took no offense to nothing. Then all of a sudden when you ain't living right or you're not stoking that fire, now all they got to say is boo and you're offended about it. Sal could ask a, a, a simple question. Is there gas in, in the car? What do you mean is there gas in the car? I'm always the one putting gas in the car. Yeah, there's gas in the car. Unlike you, you don't know what a gas station looks like. I bet you, you don't know how to put gas in the car. I'm always the one putting gas in the car. All she needed to know was there gas in the car because she needed to take Jordan to school until she needed to leave earlier to be able to get gas. But if she had asked me that when we first got married, is there gas in the car? Absolutely, baby. I filled it up just for you. You know, Big Daddy, keep your gas tank full. Uh-huh. I keep your love tank full too, baby. Now she asks if the gas is full, I'll just unload. You, you ever have that happen at your house? Right? You can say anything you want to each other. Everything's great. But after a while of doing all the work and not really loving one another, you start to resent each other. And you know what happens? We do that to God. When we quit loving God, when we abandon that love we had at first, now when God doesn't give us our way, what do we do? We get mad at God. I can tell you people who've walked away from the church angry at God. Who are we to be angry at God? He never stopped loving us. If that relationship has grown cold, it's on us. It ain't on him. And people walk away from the church angry. Or angry at somebody in the church. Well, so-and-so offended me. But Jesus died on a cross for you. Are you going to let so-and-so offending you get in the way of your worship of God? And being in the church as God has told us to be? Amen? This whole thing, I don't need church to, 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 to serve God. Yeah, you do. Almost the entire New Testament is letters written to what? Churches. The Bible says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. You need the church. I'm going to tell you this, you need the church more than the church needs you. Now put that in a pipe and smoke it for a while. Amen. We need the church much more than the church needs us. The church of God will prevail. Amen. People walking away like, I'll show them. No, all you're doing is showing yourself. And the side you're showing right now ain't pretty. It's usually covered up by clothes. You get the idea. Jesus said, remember where you used to be and then repent. So when I think about where I used to be with my walk with God and I see where I am now, I'm headed in the wrong direction. You know what repent means? To turn around 180 degrees and go back to the right thing. And then he said, redo. What does redo mean? It means go back and do the things you used to do. How often did you pray when you first gave your heart to God? How often did you go out and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? How often did you tell other people about how good God is? How often did you do things in the name of God because you wanted him to get glory and not yourself? What is it that you used to do 
when you first found out about Jesus Christ and his love for you, what did you do then? You went to church. You gathered with other believers because that meant it was just something exciting about being with other believers. You know what? That's what the early church does. Early church, if you go to Acts, you'll see that they went from house to house breaking bread with one another. And it said that souls were added to the church daily. There was people getting saved even not on church day. Amen? What about doing those things? Instead, we isolate ourselves. Or we isolate ourselves to a small clique of people who don't challenge us. Instead, they bring us down. You know what you need to be? You need to be around people that are closer to God than you are. Why? Because they will challenge you to grow. Otherwise, we get with people that are like-minded and we get in these little cliques and we think that we got it all going on and we're all going down the old pooper the same way. Right? Because we'll surround ourselves with people that instead of challenging us, they'll agree with us because they're that insecure or they're that uh, inconsiderate or that selfish too. And we're surrounding ourselves with people that instead of challenging us, they'll tell us what we want to hear because all they are is become a support group of, nat- of people who like to, to make fun of other people or, or condemn other people or the other people ain't doing it right and they think there's the only ones that are right. And they're all headed downhill. Instead, we should surround ourselves with people who are closer to God than we are. They've been serving God longer than we have. Why? Because we need to be challenged. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. I try to make sure I surround myself with people that I know that will challenge me. And if I say something wrong, they'll say, Huff, that was wrong. I need that in my life. And you need it in yours. The last thing you need is a bunch of people telling you how good you are. Because after a while, you'll start to believe it. We've left our first love. Now he says, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now listen. Well, I don't think you can lose your salvation. Nope, you cannot lose it. Losing something is misplacing it. But this is where the Calvinists and the Arminians come together, and we have a disagreement about this. The Calvinists say that those people who walk away from God never really knew Him to begin with. First off, I want to read from Spurgeon's sermon because I believe he gives a great illustration of what it means to have the lampstand removed. Because what it really talks about is the peace that we once had, the joy that we once had, the spring in our step that we once had, and the blessing of God on the work of our hands will be gone. And the presence of God that warms our heart and makes us feel our comfort will be gone. Does that mean we're still his child? Well, I don't want to take that chance. This is what Spurgeon says. He can, if he wills, even take away from the church her very existence as a church. Ephesus is gone. Nothing but ruins can be found. Rome once held a noble church of Christ, but has not her name now become the symbol of the Antichrist? The Lord can soon take away the candlesticks out of their places if the church uses her light for her own glory and is not filled with his love. God forbid that we should fall under this condemnation. 
Oh, thy mercy, O Lord, forbid it. Let it not so happen to any one of us. Yet this may occur to us even as individuals. You, dear brother or sister, if you lose your first love, you may soon lose your joy, your peace, your usefulness. You who are now so bright may grow dull. You who are now so useful may become useless. You who once were an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of babes, but if the Lord be withdrawn, you will instruct nobody and you will be in the dark yourself. At last, you may come to lose the very name of Christians as some have done who once seemed to be burning and shining lights. They were foolish virgins, and ere long they were heard to cry, Our lamps have gone out. The Lord can and will take away the candlestick out of its place if we put him out of his place by our failure in our love to him. They didn't lose anything. They abandoned it. You get what I'm saying here? They didn't lose something. They abandoned it and walked away. You ever seen an abandoned house? I'm going to tell you this. You stop living in a house and it'll be dilapidated in 10 years. You quit heating it and cooling it. You quit living in it. And it will just fall to pieces. You go out here on Lee Town Road. There's an old house. I think it's on the left, uh, Lee Town Pike or whatever. There's an old dilapidated house. It, it's just nothing. Just falling apart. There's an old house up on the mountain. I know, that, I know the guy who used to live there years and years and years ago. He was a friend of my grandfather's. And when he died, I, I don't know, the house went to family and they just didn't want it. And they just left it to the weather. And when they stopped living in it, it didn't take long for it to shrivel up, shrink up. And the weather to keep beating against it, and there was no one to take care of it. And it is now just about all but caved in. And that's what will happen to our lives if we don't take care of it, if we don't love the Lord. If we quit living in Him. If we take our works and we base our relationship on works and not the relationship itself, then we will find ourselves wanting because there are good people in this world that do not claim to know Christ whatsoever, and yet they do good things. The good things that we, were do that we are doing out of this church are not for our glory. They're for God's glory. And so what's the difference by us doing it than someone else doing it? We're doing it in the name of God, and He will bless it. Oh, trust me, I know the people that were naysayers a couple weekends ago. I know about it. I know there were people that run their mouth. I, I, I know. You know, I shot way overshot when I shot for 100. And then 100 didn't show up first thing on Saturday morning. I heard about it. I know. But I don't care. Because that's what God told us to do. By the way, we ended up feeding 125 families, not 100. Well, how did we do that? Not by Huff's choice, not by Huff's doing but by God blessing us for obedience. That's why it was done. And guess what we'll do next time? Same thing. And there will always be a naysayer because there always is. I'm asking you to assess where you're at today. Take heed to this scripture and be honest in your assessment. 
But for those who think that you cannot walk away from God, let me read this passage to you. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 15. It says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam and the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing and was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh and those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promised them freedom, but themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For it, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, think about what he's saying here. For them to have walked away, they had to know. It says, after they escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which means they knew him. They are again entangled in them and overcome. And it says the last state has become worse for them than the first. And verse 21 says, For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it turn back from the holy commandments delivering to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You ain't got to believe me, but believe the word, for it is true. If our fire has gone dim, stoke the fire. Do the three R's, and I'll leave you with that. Remember, which means to assess where I am now in comparison to where I was when I first come to Christ. Repent and redo. Pray like we used to pray when we first, when I first got saved, man, listen, praying to God, talking to him was like awesome. Remember when you first started dating, you used to talk on the phone, fall asleep on the phone together. Y'all ever done that? Sal lived long distance. You know how much money she cost me? I had a sprint calling card. Anybody remember those things? Run my bill up. Listen, I was only making like nine bucks an hour or something when I met her. And I was, I was, had a car payment and stuff. We'd run our phone bill up, falling asleep, talking to each other on the phone because I just loved to hear the sound of her voice. And when I gave my heart to God, it was the same thing. I loved to talk to him and loved to hear his voice in my soul telling me he loved me. But when we try to live a life of Christ without loving him, what we become is cynical. And we become disillusioned with the church. We become discouraged. And we become resentful. If you've ever met someone who used to go to church and now is resentful of God, I'm telling you what happened. They quit stoking the fire. And, and at some point started thinking that they somehow deserved the blessing instead of always knowing when we are in our right mind and our hearts in the right place, I know that I deserve nothing but hell. But instead, God has blessed me because he loves me. 
when I get to the point where I start expecting it, I'm in the wrong place. Let's stand.